I just wanted to disappear. And I was seeing a therapist at that point. I would just tell him, I'm a failure and I want to disappear. That's how crazy my brain was functioning at that point. You know, I was a lawyer. I was winning my cases. I had my family, everything. But I kept on saying out loud, I'm a failure and I don't want to exist anymore. That's Lini Youssefi, one of Canada's most successful lawyers. This is The Growth Effect. I'm Sarah Stockdale. I have to admit, I never thought I'd be interviewing a lawyer on this show. It's not a profession typically associated with innovation. And let's be honest, law firms aren't known for their rapid growth. But Lini Youssefi is an innovator in her field. She takes what others might see as weaknesses and turns them into strength. I have to praise failure. I have to worship failure because it really teaches me so much more than success does in so many ways. Lena wins over 90% of her cases. But for her, winning really isn't the point. Her approach is far more human than that. She's a family lawyer. She knows that people come to her thinking, how did I get here? Her clients are facing really tough decisions. For a lot of lawyers, family law is like going into battle against someone's ex to somehow win a divorce. But that isn't Lena. She cares about what happens to her clients after they leave the courtroom. Success isn't having her clients feel like they've scored some kind of victory over their former partner. It's not about revenge or getting the most money. It's about resolution and empathy. She wants her clients to leave feeling better than when they came in. Lena isn't just changing family law. She's challenging traditional hiring. Why law hires people that other employers might see as a risk? She actively hires single mothers and women returning from maternity leave. More than 90% of their lawyers are women and from all different cultural backgrounds. That's not just good practice, it's good business. Lena is one of the top 25 lawyers in the country. Her firm, Wylaw, is one of the fastest-growing companies in Canada. Lena and Wylaw have won a ton of awards. By any measure, they're really successful. Lena is also an innovator in the traditional sense. Wylaw is currently building an app that provides free advice on navigating the courts to Canadians in need. She calls it a digital lawyer. Even that development comes from a place of empathy. Lena often sees people who can't afford a lawyer trying to muddle through cases by themselves, and she wanted to help out. So to understand Lena's ethos, we have to go back to her childhood. I was a child of the Persian Gulf War, so all I knew was basically like bombs and oppression and a lot of mental problems that arose because of war, because I think naturally we're just not used to so much violence and division. She came to Canada when she was 13, and while there weren't bombs dropping around her anymore, she still had a really tough time. But like I said, where others might see weakness, Lena finds strength. Her story after this. Businesses are built by people and driven by passion. Our partners at HSBC Bank Canada pride themselves in helping those passionate people navigate the ebbs and flows of running a company. Their diverse team of relationship managers are ready to help you thrive. Learn more at business.hsbc.ca. On the first day of school, I was in for a huge shock because nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to oh associate God. with me. 
people were making fun of me from, you know, my hair to my clothes. And those were the years I was trying to establish an identity for myself when you're a teenager. And I couldn't because I had lost everybody that I loved and I couldn't gain anyone to love. So I think mentally that was very destructive for me because in my child mind, I was just feeling like I'm getting rejected from all corners and I'm helpless because I can't fix this situation no matter how much I try, you know, no matter how much I try to change my clothes or change my hair or, you know, try to learn English as fast as I can, I... The kids at school had already, you know, made up uh, made up their circles. So, you know, I was a reject. And I think that that was a very transformational time in my life where I started developing depression and anxiety. But I didn't know that I was developing them until it was a bit later. And I think for a lot of immigrants, once I shared these stories, they a lot of the immigrants reach out to me and they say, you know, I went through exactly what I, what you went through, but I've never talked about it. So I think it's really important to talk about it because my journey started really from the time I came to Canada and I started getting rejected. I completely agree with you that we need to have more of these kind of open, honest conversations, especially with folks who have, you know, in your case, built these incredible careers, but did it from a place of so much pain mm. and so many challenges that, you know, most folks building businesses in Canada have a lot of unrecognized privilege. But you you did this really from a place of both physical, you know, you were you were physically threatened in the war and then coming to here, you were kind of threatened in other ways from the, you know, the bullying and the mental trauma. How did that influence how you started to run your business? Like, did that influence your path? I think what I realized is that what happened to me wasn't really measurable. You know, kids weren't mm -hmm. coming to me and beating me up. It was very silent, you know, like people weren't talking to me. They didn't want to be my friends. So a lot of it was like this internal struggle, which was coming from neglect and, you know, rejection. Yeah. So when it came to my business module, I came from this place that... Most people who come to me have experienced the pain and trauma that I have, especially in their relationship. Because when two people are, for example, separating, they've been betrayed in some way. You know, most of them have been bullied in some way. And, and a lot of them have experienced some measure of, you know, like emotional or perhaps, you know, physical mistreatment. But it doesn't come to a level of, you know, like saying this was abuse or it was assault or, you know, you can measure it by some sort of a proof, you know. So my role in those situations became understanding and empathizing with that and letting those pains come out. Because we were told at law school and even when we became a lawyer that our job is just to deal with the legal aspect of separation. We're not therapists, we're not friends, and we're not some sort of a guide or a savior. And looking back, that concept to me is so wrong in so many ways. You know, like people who come to a lawyer are looking for a friend. They're looking for support. They're looking for someone to trust. They're looking for someone to resolve their issues. And most importantly, they're looking for someone to listen to them and understand where they're coming from, while at the same time, you know, having this general acknowledgement that, you know, no, we're not like professional therapists, but we're going to hear you out. So my motto became, 
when you come to my firm, you come to this spa. I'm going to take care of you emotionally, physically, aesthetically. You know, you come in and you just feel relaxed. And then I hear you out. And then together we come up with a path to resolve your issue instead of talking about how we're going to win this fight or this battle or this division. So if you come from that angle that everybody at some point of their life have experienced some sort of a trauma and you're here to connect with them and help them, then your business model, I think, naturally becomes more positive because the more you connect, the more you establish long-term relationships. When you said spa, like I'm going to take care of you, I've honestly never heard a lawyer talk like that before. <laughs> so, you know, I, w- growing up, uh, my parents went through a particularly brutal divorce and it always was this contextualization of family law as a battle, as some sort of like violent war between two people who used to really love each other. And yep. I think that's, you are taking a very different and interesting approach to something that is usually so painful for families. Yeah, I keep on asking myself, just like you said, anybody who's, you know, had a child with someone else or, you know, had a relationship with someone else, uh, not anybody, but I would say 99.9% of those people saw something good in each other, you know, and decided to join their energies to create magic. So you take that and you turn it into something so ugly, like having to go to court, having to go in front of a stranger judge who has to make a decision regarding everything that's going to happen to your own child in the future. Someone who has no idea who your child is will never mostly even get a chance to see your child in person. You give that control to that person and in the way take all your life savings and spend it on a lawyer to fight the other person that just should not happen ever or as much as possible you know and the role of a lawyer is extremely important because when a client comes to me I can kind of like pump their tires and they I can say you know I can win this I can get you all this money and and all this time with your child and you know 99% of the time they follow anything I say or I can say No, this is about the interest of the family as a unit. Still, after separation, you have to look out for the best interest of the family, not yourself. And this is how we're going to do it by you compromising, talking and communicating. And they will follow my advice in that instance as well. The problem to me unfortunately, is the lawyer in most of the situation because Mm, people come to you completely confused and they think they have the answer and they pay you to give them a path. And if you don't do it right, you're going to destroy families over and over and over again. So when I think of a lawyer, a couple of my close friends are lawyers. I think of, you know, someone who's incredibly type A and polished and has amazing grades in in university and is kind of at the top of their game in so many ways. I want to hear a bit about your journey through school. What was that like for you, law school? Yeah, law school was funny. What you just said, you know, on the first day of law school, I I just remember, you know, after like the first hour, just kind of like reflecting on the people I met. And over 90% were coming from, you know, like parents who are lawyers or judges or doctors. (laughs) Some of them, you know, I even knew like their last name because I knew the last name of the judge that I had seen in, you know, making like decisions in in the news. It it was really crazy. And like, I I think over 90% were, you know, your 
very privileged, you know, I would say white, blonde, good looking, you know, fit, type A, champion of running and school and world in general, <laughs> you know, so it, <laughs> it was it was intimidating. And even at law school, I wouldn't say I was a total reject, but I was definitely not in the popular group either. I was always, you know, in the sidelines. But at the end of the day, though, like whenever I think about this, you know, one story comes to my mind where, you know, like we were go- when we were going through law school, there was this like beautiful, gorgeous, blonde girl who was just perfect at everything, like was winning all the medals. And she really didn't like me because I would just show up to class late and, you know, I... Back then, you know, I had a big mouth. I wasn't politically correct. I was, you know, in in her eyes, I was like in the party group. I don't even know what that meant. And I think at some point she called me a loose cannon, which is fine. Then one night, we it was like the end of the semester. And uh, one night we all went to a party. And I think for the first time, like all the pressure of school and getting these medals finally got to her. And and I think she drank a bit too much to the point that um, even the taxis wouldn't have her, you know, get in the taxi. And I was coming out of the party, surprisingly, completely sober because I had to drive that night. And I saw her and and I said, hey, I can take you home. Do you want to get into my car? And uh, she and her boyfriend got into my car. And, you know, I, I thankfully, you know, there was no vomiting in my car. But as soon as the door opened, it happened. I think the next morning she sent me an email and, you know, just like couldn't thank me enough. And after that, you know, her and I finally connected. You know, I got her in that space of being vulnerable and I helped her when she was vulnerable, you know. So we found that commonality that, you know what, like we can be as different as we want, but when you need help, I'm here for you. And, you know, maybe when I need help, you'll be there for me. So there was this like level of respect that was created between the two of us. Regardless of our backgrounds or what we've been through, if we can just understand that we're all human and we're all vulnerable and we're all worthy and capable of making good decisions, then this division between us that, you know, goes away and then we can join forces and become better. There's this thread that you're carrying through your life and through your profession. You can kind of see in all of your stories that you have this superpower of finding people at their most vulnerable and connecting with them in a way that helps them maybe get home when they're drunk or maybe get through a really challenging divorce like this it seems like that is your superpower yeah i guess so i i mean i <laughs> i've always kind of fought against this conception that you know as professionals we need to separate ourselves from who we are in personal life i've questioned that many times and i again i know that's kind of like the general mainstream thing that you know like when you come to work you become a different person you have to show this side of you and you can't talk much about what goes on at home or who you are. And I really question that because I feel like I need to be me. I need to show who I am to my clients and everybody else in order for them to show me who they are. So it's not a talent. It's just like revealing who I am in a tasteful way. You know, I'm not going to like sit in front of my client and cry about, you know, the argument I had with my husband. (laughs) But, you know, just like you said, you know, you came from your parents' divorce. Like, does that belittle you in my eye or does that raise you in my eye or it raises you in my eye if you want me to be honest because I feel like you have enough confidence to come out and share a part of your life in a tasteful way again, you know, that kind of makes you real. 
So if I can do that, then I can get the clients who do that. And then we can create something good together and be real. That was always something that bothered me when I remember when I was early on in my career in tech, I was one of the only women at a lot of the companies that I was working at. And there was this big stigma against crying. There was a stairwell that we would go to cry (laughs) because we were very stressed, but, you know, we weren't going to cry in front of our bosses or in front of our colleagues. And now running my own company, I'm like, if I'm going to ask people to show up here with all of their passion and all of their talent and all of their motivation and all of their energy, if I want them to bring all of those aspects of who they are to work, but all of their emotion, all of their stress, all of the things that make them human, I have to ask them to divide those things. Like that is not a fair ask of a person, I don't believe. So if you cry in front of me at work, like I know that you're bringing all of the things that make you incredible at your job and you're also going to bring this thing too. And that's okay. Obviously, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to cry in front of my clients. I'm not going to cry in front of my students. But if someone is carrying something and they have to set it down for a minute at work, I completely agree with you. I think that that just makes them a better employee, a better person. In my mind, like where we went wrong a long time ago was trying to make ourselves appear as perfect. And, you know, as professionals, in order to get clients, we have to somehow not just outsmart them, but outlive their expectations by creating this image of ourselves, which isn't real. And where I disagree with that is, no, I need to show the perfect image of my abilities, but I don't need to pretend or try to create a perfect image of who I am as a person because I'm not perfect. And if I do that, then I just kind of like chip away at my client's confidence. And, you know, I can do it easier now because I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. But for a lot of people who haven't achieved that, just out of the abundance of caution, you know, they start trying to put up this image of them being perfect. And I think in the process, not only do they kind of chip away at other self-esteem, they also damage themselves because they're not being true to themselves. I agree with you because I do think especially early on in my career when I saw, and I, I I would always forget that some of these people were 10, 12, 15 years further along in their career than I was that I was judging myself against. I like to think that we're all hot messes doing our best and uh, regardless of qualifications or our shiny medals and awards. Yes, and I, you know, I, I, I try <laughs> to voice this as much as I can that when people look at what I've achieved and the awards, it's just, you know, what you see on the paper, but you don't see how many times I tried and I failed how many times I applied for these awards or were nominated and got rejected outright. Sometimes just for the reason that I'm a family lawyer and to a lot of people, it's just not as positive as, you know, somebody having like a scientific breakthrough to, you know, like save a bunch of people. I'm just a family yep. lawyer. So you can just imagine how many angles I had to come from. You know, sometimes I, I would just say I'm a lawyer. I wouldn't even like, you know, mention the word family lawyer. And then I would talk about, you know, the company culture, or, you know, the cases, you know, what what meaningful cases I did. I came from different angles goals and I failed. And every time, you know, I would get that rejection email or whatever, I would just, for a couple of days, I would just kind of like <laughs> sit in my room and close the door and just, you know, question life in general and my career and things like that. <laughs> the only thing was I would just get up, you know, after a week, I'm like, no, 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 I, I can, I can do this. I just have to refocus and I have to be more creative and I have to praise failure. I, I have to worship mm-hmm. failure because it just 
really teaches me so much more than than success does in so many ways. You know, it just keeps my ego in check. It makes me more empathetic and compassionate towards others and myself and, you know, gives me the power to create instead of just being like, okay, this worked out, then I don't have to think about it anymore. This is going to be the path that I'm going to follow. And it's taken, you know, about 10 years of my career to get to where I am today. But the majority of those 10 years were fraught by extreme anxiety and depression to the point that there were times, I think this was in 2016, I just wanted to disappear. And I was seeing a therapist at that point, I still do, and I I would just tell him, I'm a failure and I want to disappear. That's how crazy my brain was functioning at that point. You know, I was a lawyer. I was winning my cases. You know, I was making good money. I had my family, everything. But I kept on saying out loud, I'm a failure and I don't want to exist anymore. And out of the 10 years that I've worked towards this goal, eight years of that was this unhealthy running and running and running after a target such as these awards so that I, I would obtain some external validation that I'm not a failure. The whole goal was to, sorry, I'm just getting choked up here. The, the whole goal was to just tell myself even for a day or two that I'm not a failure. And so the, the, the time that that was transformational to me was, was the time where when I, actually stopped seeking those external validations and asking myself internally why I'm I want these awards and I, and I and something in me told me that I was seeking these awards because I wanted to make a difference and that's if I want to continue making a difference I follow this path and if I'm tired and I don't want to prove anything to myself anymore I can stop that's when I made a healthy decision to continue pursuing <laughs> these awards and you know this year when I got them was was really meaningful because um, when I got them I had finally switched my path from seeking external validation to seeking internal validation. Only recently have I started to seek that validation from from inside of myself and less from other people's approval and in the case of things like awards, the approval of total strangers who really don't know a lot about who you are and the impact you have. So I think, especially folks who are early on in their career and they're seeing these incredibly shiny, successful people who've done these incredible things and they're thinking, I'll feel happy when I get that. I'm going to wait to feel happy until I get those things. You're not going to feel the way you think you're going to feel when you reach that. So you have to figure out how that happiness comes from within, from somewhere else, so that someone can't take it away from you. Because if your sense of self, sense of worth can get taken away by someone, you're in a dangerous spot at that point. And I've I've been there and I, I feel like I, I relapse a little bit sometimes. Like I go back into like, yes. you know, <laughs> even with this podcast, like how well is it doing? Do people like it? Yeah, and seeking that external validation and then have to remember that is not where I get my self-worth anymore. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm really happy that you're kind of on that path too. But people like you and I have, you know, reached a certain level of, I would say, you know, I want to say success or achievement so that you were able to kind of grow and cultivate that confidence, that healthy confidence, you know. Mm -hmm. My heart goes out to people who are not where we are, you know, like students or people like just trying to uh, follow their dreams 
And so they don't have as much history or achievements as we do. So for them, it's a lot easier said than done that, you know, I'm not going to care about what other people say. I'm just going to follow my own path. It takes a huge, tremendous amount of courage. And I can say, at least for myself, until a couple years ago, I didn't have it. Uncertain times call for certain solutions. The right tools and the right partner can be your key to success, and HSBC Canada has both. Businesses are built by people and driven by passion. Our partners at HSBC Bank Canada pride themselves in helping those passionate people navigate the ebbs and flows of running a company. Their diverse team of relationship managers are ready to help you thrive. Learn more at business.hsbc.ca. So tell me a little bit about your firm, about Law. I know you have a really interesting way of thinking about hiring that's quite different than anything that I've heard about other, you know, about the legal profession or about other firms. Can you tell me a little bit about how you think about your team? I think that a lot of people who historically have been marginalized or, you know, looked at as, you know, some sort of a liability or disadvantage are actually the strongest, most capable, most beautiful people that you can be lucky to associate yourself with. And the prime example of that are new moms, women who just Mm. had children. I mean, having had my own child, the superpowers that you grow as a result of even just the experiment of giving birth, you know, in itself, let alone the days and the nights of just getting no rest and, you know, running on no fuel and, you know, having to like wake up 10 to 12 times per night sometimes and still functioning the next day and getting no break. Do you think somebody who went through that is going to be some sort of a liability at work? It just, I, 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 I ask this of myself, you know, I say, you know, here's a woman who's literally 24-7 doing something that seems impossible to a lot of people. And yet when she comes for a job interview, we hold that against her, you know. So I actively yeah. go after that woman because I know if she can do whatever she's doing at home, she can be exceptional at work. And all I need to do is just to tell her, I admire you and I appreciate you and I'll work with you. I'll be flexible. I'll work with you. And I know you're, I'm going to get whatever I give you back tenfold. So working with disadvantaged backgrounds or whatever we call as disadvantaged you know backgrounds those things have been nothing but absolute pleasure for myself and they've been completely instrumental to the success of my business because we deal with families still you know even doing family law people come in you know wanting to meet maybe a woman who has children because maybe they can connect better with with respect to their own you know custody dispute you know what I mean or like people who come from different backgrounds and they have cultures and traditions that maybe the typical you know Caucasian person may not understand These things are all advantages. And I've started to, again, try to show to others, you don't need to lay off people or silently, you know, push them out the door because they decided to have a child or because they come from a different background. You can actually take that and celebrate it and then make it work beneficially for yourself to the point that you're going to be thankful to them, not the other way around. I love hearing you talk about having diversity and inclusion at the center of your hiring practice 
isn't just the thing that, quote unquote, you should do. It is the thing that is best for business. It is the thing that is best to grow your company. It's powerful to do the right thing, but capitalism very much likes to do the thing that is good for business. Yeah. And I get so excited hearing that you can speak to the intersection of doing the right thing and actually that being the best thing for business as well. Yes, and I think the secret is just flexibility and mm -hmm. dancing with those rhythms instead of stopping them, you know? like So for example, if a mom comes to me and says, look, like I'm taking care of my baby, till, you know, 6 p.m. and she goes to bed at 6.30, can I work at, you know, 7 p.m. until 10 p.m.? No problem. Can I yeah. work part-time? Absolutely no problem. Can I work from home? Even better, you know? And like sometimes they come and say, look, for the next couple of months, I can't come to work at all because, you know, like it's summer and I don't have care. No problem. Just call me whenever you're ready to come back to work. Like you don't want to, you don't want to lose talents just because, you know, sometimes like everybody else, they go through periods of their lives where they have to prioritize, you know, some things over another. I think the problem with a lot of businesses is that they expect you to come at eight. They expect you to work full time. You know, they expect you to put everything aside and prioritize work over their own lives. And maybe you're going to get some, you know, advantage out of that again in the short term but in the long term you're probably like losing a lot of good potential and and loyalty and growth opportunities because you just kind of cut something off just because it didn't work for you because you didn't want to open your mind and be like you know what how can I work with this person instead of shutting them out and going mm -hmm. to the next I do want to ask you a little bit about COVID um feels like five years ago now, but March of this year, obviously some things are about to change for the legal profession. What did that look like for you? For us, I must say, I think long-term it's been extremely positive, right? Like, so uh, for our clients especially, because all of our court hearings are happening over the phone, which is hugely advantageous to our clients because previously we would have to go to court and charge the client several hundred dollars an hour just waiting wow. around to be called, you know? So now you just on hold and you're doing work on some other file and then, you know, they call your matter and you just make your submission over the phone five, ten minutes and that's how much the client is going to be charged. So that's hugely advantageous. The other really cool thing is how it has, at least back in March when they did like a full-on closure of the courts, how much it pushed us to shift our mindsets to how can we settle things because we can't go anywhere? We can't go in front of a judge. We need a resolution. You know, we need to figure this out on our own, which should be the way for, you know, most family cases anyway. So I found that a lot of lawyers who used to be litigious, you know, just started kind of communicating and, and uh, you know, working together so that we can create some results. So I think long-term and, and these practices of, you know, settling and doing things virtually or over the phone, I have no doubt they're going to continue past COVID. I don't think our court system is going to go back to what where it was. I don't think anybody wants that anymore. I've so enjoyed this conversation and learning about you. And I'm like, I would really like for Lena to be my cousin or, you know, <laughs> my sister you. or something. So <laughs> thank you so much for the conversation. Nobody's gotten me choked up as I'm answering an interview. So you really did, you really did a great job, Sarah. Congratulations. <laughs> oh my gosh, you got me choked up. Uh, thank you. Thank you so, so much. That was Lena Youssefi, founder and family lawyer at Wylaw. Talking to Lena, I kept thinking about things I was taught as a young woman in business. Leave your emotions at home. They have no place in the office. It's not personal, it's just business. The wolves rule here. 
never let them see you cry. To me, the message was clear. When you come to work, take your humanity off the door. Lena represents a new way. She doesn't come from privilege. She's an immigrant who fled war. She's a woman and a mother. She builds her business by including people who are seen as liabilities by the old system. She roots her work in empathy and kindness, and she wins. Lena proves that you can be the best with a whole lot of soul. She proves something else too, that sharing our stories, our vulnerabilities and our pain make us stronger, personally and professionally. Telling the truth about your life is a powerful way to connect and we need connection more than ever right now. This is the last episode of season one. Look out for more from us. But if you take anything away from the series, I hope you remember this. There's no one way to build a successful business. Each leader I spoke to grew their companies differently, with extra heart or extra care, with late nights or geriatric bedtimes. If you're building something right now, do it your way. You don't have to follow anyone else's path. And if you're struggling right now, you're not alone in that either. Every single founder I talked to for this series has an incredibly successful business. And every single one of them still have dark days. They still struggle. They still feel challenged by the enormity of what they're trying to accomplish. In the words of Glennon Doyle, these things will be hard, but we can do hard things. Thank you so much for coming along with us this season. If you really enjoyed our little show, please leave us a rating and a review. This was our first season and we'd love to hear your feedback. If you know someone going through it, please share this episode with them. The Growth Effect is produced by the Globe Content Studio in partnership with HSBC Bank Canada. The producers are Jay Coburn and Katie Jensen of Vocal Fry Studios. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. I'm Sarah Stockdale. Thank you for listening. Listening.